It's Friday, June 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Speaking out publicly for the first time about the conservatorship that has controlled her life for 13 years, Britney Spears pleaded with the judge to end it and detailed how over the years she's been forced to work against her will, be drugged, and prevented from removing a birth control device so she could have more kids. Spears mentioned that she just wanted to be heard and the conservatorship to be ended without another psychological evaluation. Lisa Richwine, entertainment reporter at Reuters, was on the scene in the courtroom and details what she heard and why it still may be a long road to free Britney. Next, federal regulators are warning firefighters about the risks of putting out electrical vehicle fires. One of the big issues is the lithium-ion batteries that power the cars. When the cars catch fire, the stored energy in those batteries often heat up and continue to reignite. In one case, it took seven hours and 28,000 gallons of water to put out the electric car fire completely. Regulators are calling for more firefighter training on how to put them out. Sirus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I wish I could stay with you on the phone forever because when I get off the phone with you, all of a sudden, all of I hear, I hear all these no's, no, no, no. And then all of a sudden I get, I feel ganged up on and I feel bullied and I feel left out and alone. Joining us now is Lisa Richwine, entertainment reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the testimony that we heard from Britney Spears on Wednesday. Uh, man, very compelling stuff. Something that she hadn't really done, able to get her message out publicly. And uh, we heard a lot. Uh, Lisa, you were in the courtroom, so we were able to get a different perspective there, hear her voice, obviously see the the fans and supporters that she had outside of the courtroom. I, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. But, you know, she told the, the judge in the court, she said she's been drugged, compelled to work against her will. She's been prevented from removing a birth control device. She says she wants to have more kids and, and get married and all this stuff. And I mean, just really some compelling stuff that we were able to hear from her. So, Lisa, if you can help start us off, what did we hear from her? Well, it really felt like she was just unloading to the court. I mean, she had not spoken publicly and made clear she wanted everything to be public. One of the lawyers suggested that the proceedings be closed to the public and the media. And she said, no, I want this to be public. I want everybody to hear this. And she just spoke very quickly for more than 20 minutes, just on and on and on that this happened to me and this and this. And, and and then I've been lying with what I've been, you know, showing the world that, you know, on Instagram, she's been saying, Oh, I'm happy. Everything is great. And really this is what I've been going through. And she spoke so fast that twice the the judge asked her to slow down because the court reporter couldn't keep up with her. Yeah, uh, reading through, I, reading through her testimony, I mean, she sounded exasperated at times, like she couldn't get it out fast enough. You know, and she made mention multiple times that, you know, she talked to them before and she didn't feel like she was heard. And this was that opportunity to, to get it all out. Yeah. And she, I mean, she really did. She, she threw in a lot of details of a lot of different incidents and, you know, at the end said to the judge, I wish I could just keep talking to you. I, you know, I have so much to say and, you know, clear, clearly made her case heard and, you know, her side of the story. Yeah. She's pleading for the judge to end her conservatorship 
that's run by uh, her father. It's kind of a two pronged thing. It's you know her her person and the estate. So and they really control her entire life there. Let's talk a little bit more about the testimony. There was a lot of focus on medications that she's been given, things that she feels obviously she doesn't need to take therapies. She said she, you know, uh, in training, in in rehearsing for some of her shows, you know, she's kind of uh, said, I didn't want to do these dance moves or or certain things. And then they put her on things like lithium and and really just messed with her head in that sense. Yes, um, that that is what she told the court and how she feels. She clearly feels like these things were forced on her and that she didn't have a choice. She was afraid. She she was um, afraid of how her father would react, you know, and afraid legally that documents were put in front of her and that they were scary and she would just sign them because she didn't know what else to do. And actually told the judge yesterday that, that she didn't know previously that she could petition to have the conservatorship ended. And that, that, that now that she knows that, that is clearly what she wants. Just going through her testimony, she said, I'm scared of people. I don't trust people after what I've been through. So she's in this really precarious position. Tell us a little bit more about this conservatorship. And she's been on it, uh, I guess, for 13 years now. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that works. Sure. Well, it started back in 2008. And, you know, there was a very public troubling time that she had where she shaved her head and damaged a paparazzi's car and her finances, her finances were not doing great. And and that was when her father stepped in and this conservatorship was put in place. And early in that uh, time, she she said that it was a help to her and that she got her life back together. And, and she did. She released another album. She went on tour. She toured for 10 years and played a very successful residency in Vegas. The idea behind the conservatorship is that, you know, you're, prote- you're protecting the person. Somebody who cares about the person is protecting them from mismanaging their finances or their health care, that they, they just can't make proper decisions or they're subject to undue influence from outside people. And, you know, certainly if you're a famous person with a lot of money, that would always be a concern. Um, and, you know, as, again, Brittany said at the beginning that that was helpful. But, you know, now she says, I'm, I'm, I've worked, I've earned millions of dollars, you know, clearly I'm a functioning adult. And, you know, this just seems ridiculous to her at this point, that she needs this kind of oversight. Yeah, she came back to that multiple times, you know, and it's been true for her whole life, really. I'm the moneymaker. I'm doing all this stuff, putting roofs over people's heads and all that. This isn't working in the present way. And conservatorships a lot of times are meant for people with serious disability, dementia, who really can't take care of themselves. So, you know, she's making that push saying, I'm an adult. I've changed. Let's end this. There was a statement, I guess, that was read by uh, not by her father, but it was from her father. What did he have to say about all of this? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, after she spoke, and I think everybody was really stunned by it, the attorney representing her father asked the judge to recess for a few minutes. And after about 20 minutes, she came back and read a statement from Jamie Spears, her father, that basically said that he was sorry to hear that she's struggling and in pain and that he loves his daughter very much and misses her. So so that's, you know, all all we have heard from that side um, at this point. So the next steps, obviously, this is a very complicated situation. You know, she's pleading for herself. Obviously, I want out of this. It's not so simple. You know, one of the themes she kept going back to as well throughout her testimony is that I want the conservatorship to end, but I don't want to be evaluated psychologically again. You know, she she has a trauma from going through it. So uh, that's one of the things she kept pleading for. But that's that might be a problem, you know, to get out of this. I mean, it might it might seem logical that she has to go through some of these tests just to to prove that. 
Right. And yeah, it will it, it will probably be a, a lengthy process from here. I mean, the next step will be that she should have she should file a petition with the court if she wants to and the conservatorship. And it, it'll be up to the judge as to how that proceeds. And in California, the burden is on the person, the conservative, the person who is under the conservatorship to, yeah. to prove that they don't need protection anymore. Because, you know, the worst thing from the judge's point of view would be that, oh, I remove it and then something horrible happens. And, you know, you know, she and you realize that she did need the protection. Normally, what happens is the court will start by sending an independent investigator to talk with her. And, uh, you know, again, all, all sides will weigh in that Jamie Spears, the father and probably her mother will will give, you know, their perspectives on all this. Um, so there'll be a lot for the judge to take into consideration what the family yeah. wants, what the independent investigator wants, um, her, one of her co-conservators now. Everybody will get to weigh in and it'll it'll be a lengthy process. As I mentioned, you were there in the court, so you were able to see everything inside and out. I know she had a bunch of uh, supporters outside. What was that scene like? She did a bunch of uh, fans dress up in pink and some of them had pigtails and they carry these signs that say, you know, hashtag free Britney. And, you know, it kind of started out as something that everybody thought was a little silly. And, you know, there was a documentary that came out this year that shed some light on her situation. And really, I mean, the fans definitely feel vindicated that they, that their suspicions were right, that, that Britney was not happy and feels like she's being, you know, controlled too much at this point but yeah they were you know it was it was probably about a hundred fans I would say and uh, you know they were they they were thrilled that that she finally got to you know speak what her story right. and you know put it put it out into the public Lisa Richwine entertainment reporter at Reuters thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me In this particular incident, it took 28,000 gallons of water to fully put out this fire. By comparison, that is something like the amount of water that an American, an average American household uses in two years. Joining us now is Sarus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Sarus. My pleasure. You wrote an interesting story about fires and electric vehicles. Federal regulators have been warning that firefighters haven't been trained properly or enough, really, uh, across the country to battle some of these things. When these electric cars go up, some of these fire departments say that it's kind of like a trick birthday candle. You'll be able to put it out, and then maybe minutes later, half hour later, it reignites. And it all has to do with these lithium-ion batteries that power these electric cars. And there's really no specific way to get around it. You just have to pour tons of water on it over 20,000 gallons of water in a few of the cases that you outlined in your story. So, Sarus, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with this. Yeah, that's exactly right. I spoke with Chief Palmer Buck from the Woodlands, Texas, that's a suburb of Houston Fire Department, and they recently had to deal with a Tesla fire where first responders arrived at a scene where the bodies of two men were found, uh, later found to be deceased, in the back of a crashed Tesla that had crashed off of a road and hit a tree and was on fire. And when that agency responded to that incident, they found, as you say, yes, that the car did reignite. Teslas, as do most electric vehicles, have massive battery packs below the chassis of the car, basically underneath the floorboards, uh, or what would normally be the floorboards. 
And uh, yes, because of the way that lithium ion batteries work, when they rupture, they can reignite and they can catch fire. And especially if they're near something else that can combust, that can catch on fire, like a tree or a house or something else, that can cause a lot of problems for firefighters. So yes, in this particular incident, it took 28,000 gallons of water to fully put out this fire. By comparison, that is something like the amount of water that an American, an average American household uses in two years. And to further that comparison, you know, a typical car, regular combustion engine, that could be put out fairly quickly with about 300 gallons of water. And, you know, you mentioned 28,000 gallons. It took those firefighters seven hours to put it out completely. So what the other effect of that is, is that you need firefighters kind of on standby to make sure everything goes out and the hours spent putting these things out, maybe they're not prepared for it. Maybe they need to put these firefighters in a different location to help somewhere else. So this is the other consequence. They can't leave. They have to keep monitoring these things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Chief Buck uh, in this town, Woodlands, Texas, uh, likened it to, quote unquote, babysitting. And, you know, for their department and their relatively small uh, department, they have eight companies. They had two of those companies that had to, quote unquote, babysit this fire for, for many hours. And yes, from the time that firefighters first arrived to the time that the incident was fully closed, it did take seven hours. And that is well beyond the typical, you know, couple of, you know, one to two hours or so that, as you say, a conventional car fire might take. And so it can really hamper, uh, especially a small department, if they need to not only bring in, you know, a large water source from somewhere else, but they need to have a number of firefighters and other first responders on hand to in order to uh, fully, uh, you know, put out this fire. Electric cars still are in the minority across the country, but every day we're getting, um, people are buying more and more of those. I think one of the estimates says that one in 10 cars are expected to be electric by 2025. So pretty soon with all that stuff. So, you know, more electric cars on the horizon, but the training hasn't caught up with firefighters yet. And, and, you know, companies like Tesla, they put out guides on how to handle some of these things. Unfortunately, they're not much help. I think it just says use copious amounts of water, something like that. So it doesn't specify exactly how much or really how to get to it quickly. Yeah, I mean, Tesla is the, currently the largest vendor of and manufacturer of electric cars in the United States, as you say. But yes, you're right. These figures are getting uh, are, are rising all the time. Uh, you know, at least where I live here in Northern California, you see Teslas and other electric vehicles, you know, with increasing frequency. You have, you know, President Biden just test drove the, the Ford, uh, you know, F-150 Lightning, the electric uh, truck. Uh, and you have other companies that are coming out with new models all the time. So this is something that is kind of looming in our in our near future. And yes, as you say, this is something that, that firefighters are not fully adequately trained on. There are, of course, guides that are put out by Tesla and the other car manufacturers. But yes, they don't always offer the degree of specificity that many fire agencies would like. And many fire agencies have just not had adequate training. You know, I spoke to some other fire agencies that said that, you know, they were sort of generally aware of what to do, but that there hasn't been enough training by the various agencies that, that, that they would need. So this is certainly something that, you know, the fire community is concerned about. In Europe, they take an interesting approach. They try to get the electric vehicle into some type of shipping container, dumpster filled with water, basically dunk it if, if they can. But Tesla says that they don't really recommend this. So the simple question is, how do you do it? What is the most effective way to put them out without barring using over 20,000 gallons of water? 
the optimal way, you know, the thing that Tesla says and that I think firefighters would agree on is to try to cool the battery down to try to prevent or mitigate uh, this so-called thermal runaway where the battery is sort of heating up and reigniting. And so if there's a way to get underneath the car to maybe jack it up or gain access to it, pour water underneath it so that they can cool it down and eventually put the fire out, that is one way. There's another, you know, and this is in the NTSB report, to have car manufacturers start to think about having a standardized way to put out these fires, to maybe have some sort of standardized across all manufacturers kind of emergency access port where firefighters could simply dump water directly into the battery rather than having to go kind of hunt for the opening and try to figure out how much water and where to put it. But yeah, in Europe, they've taken a different approach in the, in the Netherlands specifically. I think this may partially have to do with the fact that a lot of fire agencies there, from what I understand, have replaced their ladder trucks, those big you know, fire trucks that we see in a lot of American cities. In many Dutch cities, they've replaced those with cranes. And that partially that has to do with, with how Dutch cities are kind of designed uh, and, and built and organized. And also the fact that Dutch, a lot of Dutch uh, buildings are very skinny. And so it's hard to do kind of a big kind of American style ladder truck in those places. So a lot of, a lot of American fire agencies, while they do have the capacity to reach great heights with the ladder trucks, those are not generally equipped to, as you say, put a dumpster or shipping container or some other large piece of equipment and then fill it with water and bring it to the site. Agencies are not generally equipped to do that. So uh, what they are equipped to do is tap into, you know, the water reserves that they carry on their rigs, on their, on their engines and trucks, and of course tap into the network of, of fire hydrants that exist in, you know, I think most, you know, decently large American cities. But, you know, one of the things that Chief Buck talked to me about uh, and mentioned was, you know, what if this accident had happened on a freeway, right, where there isn't a readily available source of water, then what are you going to do? And so these are the kinds of things that that firefighters are now having to grapple with. So have we seen any action on expanding this training? And is there any set training? From reading your article, I guess a lot of these fire agencies kind of just coordinate with each other and, and share best practices. But have there been any attempt to at least set what should be done and expand that training across the country? Yeah, I'm not aware of a formal kind of national standard. I mean, you know, our fire agencies, like many other government agencies, are kind of federalized, which means that they're, you know, controlled from the from the local county and state level. There is no national fire authority that can set, you know, fire policy on a nationwide basis all in one go. So the agency known as the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, which is a lobbying and research arm for the fire insurance and firefighting community, have conducted trainings with a lot of fire agencies around the country. So far, they have trained a quarter million firefighters and emergency responders over the last 12 years. However, that leaves the overwhelming majority, roughly 80 percent of the more than 1.1 million firefighters nationwide that have not had a, you know, not been trained yet. It's important to remember also that two thirds of American firefighters are volunteers. They work for small towns. They have other jobs they do other things and they're kind of volunteer firefighters in their community. So they may be kind of harder to reach and harder to, you know, take the time to make sure that they have the adequate education for how to respond to an incident like this. Sarus Farvar, investigative tech reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.